Hey there, welcome back to the High Heat Stats Podcast. This is episode number four. We did something a little bit different this time. Ashley Varela and I just got together for more or less just a conversation about what it's like to be a fan now versus 25 years ago, stats, TV, all-star game, Mariners, uh, all sorts of stuff. So it's it's kind of a kind of a fun different way of doing things so please enjoy uh we are as always sponsored by the baseballreference.com play index go over there check it out baseballreference.com slash play index if you want to sign up you can get three bucks off if you're a new member by putting in the promo code hhs and that's it let's get right into it episode number four here it is Enjoy. So you told me that you became a baseball fan in 2010, is that right? Yeah, June of 2010, actually. Oh, do you have a, do you have the specific date even? I do. I think it's I think it's around June 19th. Um, and I've looked up I've looked up the game where I considered myself to like make that switch from viewer to fan. Uh, yeah. And it was a game. I think it's between the Giants and the Red Sox, and Andres Torres stole two bases. Um, kind of in one go. And I, I mean, I wasn't familiar with the rules. I didn't know you could steal bases. So that kind of caught me off guard and I was really impressed. I thought he was maybe cheating or something. Like I didn't understand why he got to have two extra bases. Um, And you were watching on TV or you were at the game? uh, MLB TV. Hooked it up to my computer. Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually a good segue like the whole concept of MLB TV is so weird. I've actually never even used MLB TV, even though it's been around for a long time. Oh, wow. Uh, see, see if you can imagine this. Uh, I I started following baseball in 1988, and back then the only games you could ever see were your home team uh, broadcasting on your local channel or you could see, like, the Braves used to be on TBS, and TBS is carried by most cable companies. Mm-hmm. And the Cubs, you know, were, in, were on WGN, and that was available in many markets, not not all markets around the country. But that was basically it. And if it was a team that was in the other league or whatever, you know, if you lived in a National League city and there were those National League teams that were also on the national networks, you basically didn't see other teams except for the game of the week that was on. It was on various various channels and various times, but there would be one nationally covered game a week which would feature other teams. But there was no ESPN. There was there was there were no games on a on a network like ESPN. And it's certainly not like the way it is today where you can basically see any game you want live or on recording. You can see highlights of anything. It uh here's a really weird thing for you. Back then, it was often the case that you didn't necessarily know if players were black or white. Oh wow! You could tell you could tell from because if you didn't see them on TV, and if you hadn't seen a picture of them in the paper, wh- when would you ever have seen them? Right. Right. That that was basically it. So sometimes it would be a shock. You'd see a guy who you knew, but uh, but. You'd never, you, know, you knew his stats, right? But you didn't, you never saw him before. So if you hadn't seen him on a baseball card or something, um, it was, uh, it was a, I mean, you probably can't even imagine what that was like. It was a no. very different sort of time. So what, what made you tune in to that game on that day? And, and had you, you hadn't really watched any baseball before that, I gather? No, I hadn't. I, um, actually, I played, I played interleague softball in college as kind of a, kind of on a dare. Uh, 
that sparked my interest in baseball, but I, I was moving from Southern California back up to Seattle, and I decided if I wanted to get into baseball, I couldn't choose the Mariners because they were bad. That's all I knew about them is they were bad. So I went with a very popular team at my school, which was the Giants, and kind of devoted my summer to watching their games online. Um, and and obviously you, you picked a good time to like the Giants. Yes. Um, it's been it's been a it's been an incredible few years for them. I don't you know it's not it's not common that a team wins a couple of World Series and has a player as dynamic as Posey, who's done so much mm-hmm. in such a short career. Um, it's funny because I live in the Boston area, and going back now to 2001, there has been an, a really unusually large number of championships here in Boston, right? The New yeah. England Patriots have won what, th- three Super Bowls, I believe, <laughs> or four. Gosh, I... I <laughs> Neil Neil Payne from Sports Reference is going to kill me that I can't remember that because we talk about it all the time. I, I think they've won three and lost two since then. But um, and then of course the Red Sox won in two thousand four and two thousand and seven, and then the Celtics won a championship, and then the Bruins have won a championship. The Bruins just lost the Stanley Cup Finals, but they were in the finals. And so it's funny because there are all these kids who live in the Boston area. I, I mean, truly kids, not not young adults like you, but who, you know, who are 10 or 12 years old who think this is how it is. Every year, one of your teams wow. is winning a championship. And and you may suffer from the same thing because you've had two so early on mm-hmm. in your in your uh, period as a fan. Um, but hopefully, hopefully you won't be too disappointed. I mean, I get yeah. the sense that you're you're a pretty you're a pretty you turn into a pretty broad baseball fan in general. It sounds like. Yeah, um, I went to about 43 Mariners games last year, and that wow. gave me a little bit of perspective as to what it feels like to lose frequently and um, not to have a team that you can be incredibly proud of on the field. Yeah, but but Mariners fans are pretty cool people. I think I, so. I was, actually, I was actually at the first game at Safeco. I was living in Seattle wow. when they were playing in the Kingdom, then when they transitioned to Safeco in the middle of the year. And I was there when they imploded the kingdom too, which is, which was kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Um, Seattle's a great place to to see ball game for sure. So, what? Uh, well, well, let me give you a little bit more background. Um, in 1988, um, there was no internet, obviously. It didn't really come around until the mid-90s. And the interesting thing is, where do you think we got our stats in 1988? I was trying to figure this out um, before the podcast, and I was just thinking newspapers or encyclopedias or something like that. because. Yeah, so you hit two of the three main sources. One is newspapers, and it would be like your local paper, like, uh, you know, the Seattle PI or, mm-hmm. you know, the Boston Globe or whatever, they would run literally every player's stats um, like once a week or sometimes twice a week. So wow. it would be literally like a page of just names and numbers. Huh. And this, I don't remember exactly, but, of course, the stats they would run, I think, would be just home runs, RBI, and batting average. Of course. Um back then, because nobody really, I mean, to say nobody knew it on base percentages is wrong, but nobody, oh, I hear a dog. Oh, sorry about that. That's okay. That's no, There's no problem. That can stay in. There's no problem with that. It's just, I just amuses me. I'm, <laughs> I am a dog, dog lover myself. So, um, the, you know, certainly on base percentage was a known thing, but it uh, was not something that very many people paid attention to at all. You never saw it listed on TV or uh, in the paper. There was also publications like Baseball Weekly, which obviously came out weekly and published a full set of stats every time it came out. Baseball Weekly has since morphed into Sports Weekly, um, which is what you're working on right now for for High Heat Stats. And they – I was actually talking to to the – the assistant editor there, Josh, who who we report to, 
And he says that they get a lot of complaints that the stats are not run in there anymore. Oh, wow. Because they just they just don't take two pages and put, you know, a whole set of stats that you can get online yeah. that wh- – why would you go to a newspaper that's three days old when you can go virtually anywhere online and get stats that are up to the minute? Um, so – they got a lot of complaints about that because, of course, the people who subscribe to the paper now are generally an older crowd who aren't necessarily really online very much. Mm-hmm. So they actually really, really want that. So the other, the other thing you mentioned was the encyclopedia. And yes, there was, there is the baseball encyclopedia. And so that was a book that was really expensive. So I bought, wow. I believe, the 1988 edition. I'm gonna say the cover price was was eighty bucks or a oh, hundred wow. bucks or something like that. Yeah, because it's a really thick, you know, huh. hardcover book with like these really really thin pages that had you know at least a thousand pages, if not more. And it was an unbelievable. You could have a single book that has everybody's statistics in it, even the retired players. Mm-hmm. The the pisser was that once the 1988 season started, all the active players were out of date. Yeah. Um. The third place you could get stats, of course, was baseball cards, and that went back a long time. And that's, of course, the same story. For a retired player, great. You could get his last card in theory and have all of the stats, but for current players, you couldn't, couldn't do that, right? It, obviously, you had to wait till the next year for the, for the cards to get published that would have the stats on it. Yeah. So it's kind of amazing. I, I remember... I'm trying to think of what year it was exactly. The year that Tino Martinez had a lot of home runs at the All-Star break. I can't I think it was 1997. When I first discovered um Baseball Reference. Oh wow. Um and I don't know that it was in its current form. I think it might have been in sort of a prototypical form, a, a prototype form, but it uh it was like, oh my god, you can go on there and get stats of players through. But again, it was only through the previous year. It was not updated daily like like it is today. But you could at least get, you know, if it was 1997, you could get a player's 1996 statistics. Isn't it? Impo- I mean, it's got to be just mind blowing to you. It is. To think that you couldn't get access to that stuff. So, I mean, when you want to get stats, where do you get them? I go to Baseball Reference first. Um, yeah. Fangraphs if I need to, but yeah, everything I do is through baseball reference. I'll stay up till hours of the night until they update, you know, the page that I'm looking for. Um, Oh really? Well, yeah, something of a night owl, but, uh, most of their daily updates I thought happen around like seven or 8 AM Eastern. I would think you'd have to stay up really late for that, but maybe they've, maybe they've bumped that up to an earlier time. No, um, that sounds about right. Um, Oh, you're staying up till that time. (laughs) Yeah. Usually to write about baseball. Got it. So that's another interesting thing. Where where are the places where you write these days? These days I write for Prospect Insider, which focuses a lot on the Mariners farm system and um, the farm systems of the American League, I want to say. And that's really the only site that I've been giving attention to. I used to write for about five at one time, and that just became overkill. Right. But that's the interesting thing is you're, I mean, I don't know much about your background, but uh, I'm assuming you're not a, like a professional journalist. I don't, I don't know. No. If you, but, but here you are writing content and I know you've written some for High Heat Stats mm-hmm. and, and you're sharing stuff with hundreds or thousands of people who are looking at it. And again, in 1988, that was not something that ever happened, right? Back then... Yeah. You read what was in your local paper. You read what was in Baseball Weekly. You, I think that there were a number of other publications that you could read, but there was very little in the way of, let's say, timely discussion, and there was very little way for so-called common folk like you and me <laughs> to to have a voice other than, let's say, with your friends, right. you know, or something like that. So... It was, uh, of course, there were books, like actual published books, which was another major place where people would write. But 
it's uh, it's kind of amazing that people like you and me can actually have an audience and actually discuss things with people, uh, which I think has gone a long way to advance statistics in general. Absolutely. Uh, so I I'm curious about. So let me let me let me set the stage for you. Mm-hmm. In 1988, we were coming off of a really weird season. 1987 was a very odd season. I don't know if it's anything you've ever looked at, but I don't think so. all the in, all the indications are that the ball was juiced that year. That there was something mm-hmm. different about the ball because home runs were hit at a incredible incredible pace. I'm actually just oh. gonna look it up so I can actually speak intelligently <laughs> as opposed to what I've been doing so far. Yeah, in 1987, home runs jumped up to 1.06 per game per team. Wow. Which may not sound like a lot because that's actually very similar to what it is this year. So far this year, it's 1.02. But think about the fact that in 1988, one year later, it dropped from 1.06 down to 0.76. Dropped you know, that's probably about 25% um, in one year. And all, you know, as recently as 1981, it was 0.64 per game. Oh, wow. So 1987 saw this huge spike. And in 1988, it was sort of back to very low offense. Run scoring was only 4.14 per game. It was the lowest we had seen since 1981, but it was very typical of the 1970s and the 19 and, and the very early 1980s uh, of low offense, and it was a speed game. There was still still almost a stolen base per game per team, and a lot of more sacrifices and all the rest of that. And then around 1993 was when things started to change dramatically, and offense started to pick up. And then obviously we had McGuire and Sosa in '88, uh, in '98, and Bonds in 2001. And by the time you came around to being a fan, we actually were starting to come off that. 2010 was the beginning of the what I think of as the return to normalcy. And this year, 2013, is the first year that is very similar to 1988 that we've ever had. It's 25 years ago. But what is your take on the game today? I mean, when you think about baseball, you mentioned the stolen base uh, as something that excited you and and drew you in. But, boy, you don't actually see very many stolen bases today. I mean, what do you think about when you think about baseball? What, What comes to mind in terms of team offense and pitching and all the rest of that? Um, I was used to the, I got used to the 2010 team with the Giants, and that was very pitching centric. And I think in the beginning, I I really focused a lot on on pitching, and I kind of expected to see like the no hitter during every game. Um, so I think I didn't actually focus on offense for what, two years or so until 2012, and the teams that I were fo- that I was focusing on. Uh, the teams that I was focusing on started putting up a lot more home runs and a lot more um, offense than I was used to. So um, today, I guess I still focus on pitching. That's still like the thing that I think of when I think of baseball is I expect all the strikeouts and the shutouts and things like that. I um, I saw Felix Hernandez's perfect game last year and Philip Humber's perfect game. So that kind of colored my perception of just the flow of the game and how it how it progresses. It's really interesting. Um, of course, the Giants were kind of a kind of a weird team that year in 2010, right? I'm just uh, I mean they had they had about league average in terms of scoring mm-hmm. that year, but their pitching I think was re- really remarkably good if I if I recall correctly. I'm just calling it up over here. Yeah, they had the best ERA in baseball um, that year, although the Padres actually allowed slightly fewer runs, interestingly. Um, But they were kind of a weird team in the sense that they had a very very average offense, 
but they had stellar pitching. But I think that that year, 2010, was a turning point, although you wouldn't see it as such because it was new to you then. But what was going on between 1993 and 2009 was just insane in terms of the number of home runs seen and, mm-hmm. you know, shutouts were, were never seen. So let me just give you a few examples. In, in 2000, which is for many offensive statistics, the peak, there were 1.17 home runs per team per game. And in 2010, when you started watching, there were only 0.95. That's about 20% drop, which is a lot. I mean, 20% is really significant. And the Giants, of course, were even lower than that. But the interesting interesting thing is I think that a fan who came into the game, more like Dalton, let's say, who I think sort of came in in the very late 90s when he was a youngster – um, he's used to the high offense. Yeah. And he feels that the game in the last four years is kind of weird. Whereas I feel like the game is finally just starting to approach what I'm used to, um, which is what the majority of baseball was before 1993, whereas you just feel it is what it is. I mean, it sounds yeah. like you don't have much of a – you have, I think, a pretty healthy perspective of what the game actually is today. Yeah, and I think, I mean, I think the Mariners had a lot to do with that, too. Just, you know, I'm very used to the success and the um, kind of the more impressive games that the Giants have put together. And I think the Mariners have just given me some perspective, kind of balanced to the way I view baseball. Yeah, and I think that, I think you're making a, I think that's a really interesting point, because the the Giants, of course, have had some incredibly dynamic players during your period of, of fandom. Mm-hmm. You know, Lincecum and Posey and, and Kane and uh, Sandoval. And the Mariners have not really had very much to speak of. They, I mean, they have some, they have some talented players. Obviously, they have Felix Hernandez. But, mm-hmm. but beyond that, they have some talented players who are more talented I think more appealing from a sabermetric perspective than they are to the general baseball community. And so they don't get very much attention, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, as you say, you're probably accustomed to seeing a lot of really dominant pitching performances and some timely hitting from a, from a more opportunistic offense. And you haven't been getting that, um, in Seattle, that's for sure. Yeah, no, I watched the Astros beat the Mariners 16-9 to this year. That was my new low point. Uh, yeah. That, there was probably a lot of strikeouts in that game. <laughs> Not enough. What's your, what, yeah, what's your experience um, being a fan in Seattle? We talked about it a little bit before, but how do you... How do you find the fans? How do you find the team? How do you find the uh, the sort of community around the team? Uh, how do you find Safeco? Well, Safeco is beautiful. That's, I mean, that's one of the main reasons I try and go to as many games as I can. But the fan base is very devoted, um, and they usually know a lot about the team. And they can, you know, talk for hours about 1995 and 97 and 2001. Um, but it's... It's a little bit lonelier, you know. I've I've been to two games that broke the all-time uh, lowest attendance record at Safeco. I think one was 11,000 fans, another was a little over 10,000. Um, so you really have to kind of hunt for people to talk baseball with. Uh, that's not good. No. <laughs> you know, it's funny because when I lived there, I remembered that – so the, you brought up 1995 mm-hmm. – there was that moment, of course, when the Mariners eliminated the Yankees in the first ever uh, divisional playoff round. So the I'm trying to remember, I think the Yankees were the wild card, right, that year? I think so. Um, yeah, so in 1995, the Yankees were the, were the first wild card. The Rockies were the first wild card from the NL. 
and they got knocked off by the Mariners in the division series. The Red Sox had actually won the AL East and uh, lost to the Indians, and then the Indians, of course, beat the Mariners and then went on to lose to the Braves in the World Series. But that, that game five, which ended uh, Edgar Martinez got a hit off Jack McDowell, and tell me if you've ever seen video footage at the stadium of Ken Griffey Jr. slotting in with the winning run. Oh, yeah. Uh, when I was there, they just played it over and over and over <laughs> again. You know, and I was I was at Mariners games. I think the last one I went to in Seattle was maybe in 2002, and they just kept playing that same highlight over and over again because it was basically the best highlight they had. It still right? is. They've never, right? They've never won the World Series. They, you know, they 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 have it. They have at least one a postseason series, um, I believe, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. 2000, they, 2000 is the wild card. They beat the White Sox, and then they lost to the Mariners. Uh, sorry, the Mariners lost to the Yankees in the uh, ALCS, and then they lost to them again in the 2001 ALCS. Um, so, I mean, they have actually won other playoff series, but... Yeah. They haven't advanced to the World Series and obviously haven't won the World Series. And so it, I always find it to be kind of funny to be a fan of a team that hasn't ever won a championship. But, of course, they're not the only ones in that boat. No, and I attribute a little bit of my Mariners fandom to the fact that I was raised to be a Seattle Seahawks fan um, and kind of was taught <laughs> about the heartbreak of following a team that's really not going to win or didn't put themselves in a in a position to win until one year and then we lost in the Super Bowl. So it kind of right. it's it permeates every fan base in Seattle this idea of losing often. Yeah, when I was living in Seattle the Seahawks were just an awful team. You know, they had quarterbacks like Dave Craig and uh I'm trying to remember who else was there, but it was it was a bad it was a bad scene, that's for sure. Yeah. John Kitna, John oh, yeah. Kitna was there, <laughs> and uh, I'm trying to remember who else. I actually had the pleasure, and you'll appreciate this, that the the Seahawks played in the Kingdom before they got their own stadium. Mm-hmm. But I had the pleasure of seeing the Seahawks play at Husky Stadium at, on the University oh, of yeah. Washington campus, and I actually. I was a grad student there, and I worked in a building adjacent to the stadium. Wow. So I would just, you know, I'd go to work on a Sunday morning, and I had tickets for the game, and I'd just go meet my friends and just literally walk over to the stadium. But that's such a great open-air stadium right oh, on beautiful. the uh, right on the lake there, and so it's a great place to see a game. Yeah, no. So um, what do you know about the the notion that, the Mariners never win because they live so far away from other teams and have so much more travel. Is that something that's still ever discussed there? Have you ever heard that theory? I've heard that maybe once, but not any time recently. Usually the excuses you hear are the climate in Seattle and the air making, you know, the ball travel slower or something, um, the fences, which they just brought in. But almost never do you hear about the travel schedule being a part of it. But, I mean, all those things you just cited, of course, affect both teams. It's not like the Mariners are hitting. It's not like they move the fences in when the other team is hitting or something. Right. And you would think that the Mariners would be used to it since they're there, 81 games out of the year. Um, Right. But but this notion of the travel, to me, uh, certainly it, it has been expounded on before. So I'm, I'm covering ground that other people have covered. But in general, it, it strikes me as really uh, egregious. Now, uh, you know, you're living there. Presumably you've traveled to other places. It's a long plane ride, even just to get to San Francisco, oh, yeah. Seattle. It's a long ways. And coming to the East Coast, it's hours and hours and hours. Now, I know these guys aren't exactly, uh, you know, crammed in little coach seats like <laughs> the rest of us. Nor are they even like in first class. They're in, they're in something way above first class. Mm-hmm. But I have to think that just the sheer amount of hours you spend uh, traveling has just got to it's got to have an effect on those those players. I would think I'd really yeah. I'd really like to talk to 
some former players and ask him about it. Something I should I should probably ask Reggie Jefferson about because he he played there obviously, and uh, I'm sure he would have an opinion on it. He he occasionally answers my tweets on Twitter, so <laughs> I uh, I uh, will have to pose that one to him. So, what else is on your mind? I'm curious as a modern fan. What are the any any topic that you might any have? Any topic. About baseball, obviously. Um, right. No, I've actually been really fascinated by the Mariners farm system uh, lately because that's, that's kind of the front that the Mariners front office will put up is like, just bear with us. And in, you know, two, three, four years, we're going to have an amazing team because we have all these young guys coming up. So that's something that always fascinates me is following the development of a team that's really relying on their young guys. And, uh, I was reading this article in, gosh, ESPN, I think, about the Houston Astros and their whole philosophy behind, like, being willing to take a season of 100-plus losses so that they could really benefit from it in the long term. Uh, a, a season of 100 losses? I think they're well, on their third seasons. in a row now. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's kind of insane. Now, remind me, the uh, is there a AAA affiliate, the Mariners, still in Tacoma? Yes, there's still the Tacoma Rainiers. Right. Um, and so, do you ever go down there? I haven't. See games? I haven't yet. Um, that's one I of bet my goals. It's a, it's a, I bet it's a lot of fun. I have not yeah. been to that stadium where they play. Um, I, I, I've only ever been to Tacoma a couple times. But in general, minor league stadiums are so much smaller, and you're sitting so much closer to the oh yeah to, uh, to the fans. Or, uh, pardon me. <laughs> sitting so much closer to the players. And, of course, it costs so much less, too. Oh, yeah. To no, I went up to their short-season single-A affiliate in Everett, and I sat right next to the field for, like, 15 bucks. It was fantastic. Yeah. Spring training is the same way, too, of course, uh, if you ever get the opportunity to do that. Mm-hmm. So, like, Adam, uh, I don't think goes to very many Red Sox games, but he, I believe, is a season ticket holder for the Paw Sox. Oh, wow. For um, the Red Sox AAA team, and you know, he says the same thing. Why would you pay three times as much to go see the Red Sox uh, when you can go see quality of play that's almost as good with players, some of whom are going to be playing in the majors this year, right. and uh, for for just so much less money. He also happens to live a lot closer to where they're located, I think, so it's it's very convenient okay. for him. So. Let's talk about Kyle Seeger. Okay. Um, he gets almost no attention nationally, but I have him as, you know, a really good player. I mean, what is your take on him? What kind of attention does he get in Seattle? Is he regarded as, is he regarded as a, a, as a major part of the team or, or, or what? He's regarded as a pretty major part of the team. Um, He's known as Two Out Seeger. I think that's his nickname because he gets a lot of hits when there are two outs in any situation. Um, and he's known for his defense. I saw him snag a, a line drive at the game the other day and was just reminded that he, he can make some pretty um, high quality plays, but he's not one of the, he's not one of the players you're going to see like on people's jerseys or anything like that. Like as far as popularity goes, he's not up there. Um, so I think even in Seattle, he's a little he's a little underrated, but he's a pretty yeah, solid player. Because he's probably the most valuable position player the Mariners have. I think I think Raul Abanez is probably having a slightly better season statistically, but obviously he's not the future of the team. Right. Um, this is this is Abanez's third time there. I mean, can you imagine <laughs> when I was living in Seattle. He was there, he was gone, he came back wow. and was gone again, and now he's back a third time when you're there. It's uh it's kind of amazing. But well, but he still has it. I mean seventeen seventeen or eighteen home runs. I think it's eighteen home runs now. Um he's forty one yeah. years old, so I'll take that. Yeah, uh yeah, everybody would. But the so the thing about um Seeger is that I I wrote about this actually in USA Today Sports Weekly right at the beginning of the season that in last year, 2012, he had the highest percentage of RBI coming in 
high leverage situations. Oh, wow. In other words, he had 86 RBI, which doesn't seem like anything special mm-hmm. for a guy playing a full season. He played 155 games, but um, a very high percentage of his RBI were very meaningful. Mm-hmm. Now, that may be somewhat stilted by the fact that the Mariners were so starved for runs right. that that their games might have been closer on average, possibly. Uh, you know, obviously, like when um, – when Felix pitches, he's not pitching in a lot of, you know, 10 to nothing blowouts. No. He's pitching in a lot of games that are very close because he's holding the other team to a low score, but the Mariners aren't scoring either. And so yeah. it may be also that Seeger had a lot more high leverage RBI opportunities. But the, mm-hmm. but the point is he's a great player. Um, and I think he, I think he deserves a lot more attention than he's getting. Do you know Kyle Seeger's middle name? I don't. I'm looking at it on Baseball Reference. It is Dewar, D-U-E-R-R. I wonder if that's wow. maybe like a mother's maiden name or something. I would it's not a so. name. It's not a name <laughs> I'm uh, familiar with. I've never heard of that. Um, the cool thing about Kyle Seeger is that, you know, baseball runs in his family, so he has. Corey Seager, I think it's his younger brother, is this big prospect in the Dodgers organization. And Justin Seager just got picked up in the draft in one of the, I mean, it's like the 30th round or something, by the Mariners. Oh, interesting. Um, what is your opinion on the All-Star game? <laughs> I like the All-Star game. I I like that it has um, a consequence, but, you know, it awards home field advantage to whoever happens to be in the World Series. Um, that's my only motivation to watch it, really. I think the Giants won the All-Star game last year. I think a lot of like the a lot of the runs and the pitching and stuff was off of the Giants players, which was kind of funny. That's interesting because, of course, most, most fans, at least that I know, don't like that. Yeah. Don't like that it counts. And I think there's a pretty reasonable argument to be made that if the game actually counts for something – then shouldn't the rosters roster selection process be um, not limited the way that it is to have to include someone from every team mm-hmm. um, to have fans voting for players if you know if there really are consequences yeah that doesn't that doesn't bug you or the fan you the fan care? voting bothers me a little bit just because I think the Giants fans were accused of you know stuffing the ballot boxes or whatever because they would vote so many times for the same players. And the Mets pulled something where they tried to attract the attention of, like, a, a website designed for dating for older women. You know, like, tried to pull, like, cougars in or something to vote for David Wright. Um, oh, yeah. So, yeah, I think if, if it does have that kind of a consequence, sure, there should be a little bit more of a serious process that involves selecting players. I don't. I don't really have a problem with actually either of those things you just cited as examples because it's fans, you know, putting in the effort or teams to put in the effort to pull for players who they really want to see in the All Star game. But I grew up. I grew up seeing, for example, Ozzie Smith and Cal Ripken getting elected to the All Star game by fans every single year. Mm-hmm even when they were well past their prime. And, and they were – neither of those guys was ever a terrible player, and by no means did I ever not enjoy seeing them in the All-Star game. They're both great guys mm-hmm. and 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 uh, nice to see. But, you know, they both were getting voted in when they were, at best, the sort of fifth or sixth best shortstop in their own league. Yeah. And it was all based on popularity or name recognition or whatever. I would like to have seen some team stuff the ballot box for one of their their shortstops who was maybe more deserving. Um, sure. Well, I think isn't Derek Jeter like second in voting or something? Right, like and that? that's a great. I mean, that's a great example. And you know, yeah, last year Jeter had a great year, and and for him to receive votes would be fine but he's had some years in the in in the last several years that were really bad yeah and he really didn't deserve to be there and why he's receiving millions of votes is is beyond me i find that really irritating and i 
I lost interest in the All-Star game years ago as a consequence. Huh. When you Have you ever seen footage of All-Star games from, like, the 1970s? No. I'm sure you've seen... I'm sure you've seen Pete Rose um, barreling into home plate yeah. in the All-Star game. And, you know, now he was a super intense player, but in general, players played with a real intensity back there of having the pride of the league that they were from mm-hmm. that, that players just don't care about today. Right, right. And there's so much attention paid to not wanting to be injured and uh, wanting to – uh, have a high profile and good publicity and all that, but I just don't think players really want to put in the effort. And I don't really have a problem with that, but then I sort of feel like they shouldn't even really bother to play the game. Or if they play the game, yeah. it should be clearly an exhibition. Yeah. You know, let's just say the game doesn't count for anything. We can goof around and, you know, let's be safe and have some fun, and the outcome doesn't matter. That's what I would actually rather see. Now, what do you think of the Home Run Derby? I never watched the Home Run Derby, actually. It holds no interest to you, or you just never happened to catch it? or um, Kind of both. It, But, yeah, it doesn't really hold much interest for me. Um, and what do you think of pitchers batted? I'm sure you heard about Justin Verlander sort of half-joking that he <laughs> – can get in. Is that something that you think is fun? Would it be interesting to you, or you just oh, think yeah. that's... Oh, yeah. No, I love pitchers batting. That's I'm firmly in the pitchers batting like camp when it comes to designated hitters versus pitchers batting. Like It just it amuses me. Like I remember Santiago Casilla taking an at-bat, and he stood at the very, the very edge of the batter's box and just got four balls and got a walk. And it was fantastic. Like, I think it's great. Yeah, and you know, it's funny you say that because we've seen some things like that in all-star games, uh, like Larry Walker and John Cruck batting against Randy Johnson comes to mind, and people who have seen, saw that game or seen footage will know what I'm talking about. Um, but the, you know, that's what I would like to see. The other thing that I would like to see is a genuine skills competition. I don't really think hitting home runs off batting practice style pitches is a real skill. Right. I think you know, the majority of major leaguers can do that. Um, you know, as evidenced by the fact that the majority of major leaguers do hit a few home runs every year. Yeah. Uh, it's just not that impressive to me. What I've been saying on Twitter is I would like to see uh, something like a hitting to all fields competition. Ooh. You know, have have players get up there and have to, in sequence, you know, hit balls to left field, to center field, to right field, huh. um, or do things like outfield throwing drills where you <laughs> throw to, you know, you make like you're trying to throw a guy out at second base and you see how accurate your throw is and how quickly you can get it there and that sort of thing. That sounds like... And there's... Sorry. What do you think? Oh, it just sounds okay. a little bit like glorified spring training. So it's not that's not interesting to you either. No, I would no, I'd watch that. It just that's what it reminds me of. Yeah, I mean, I would agree with that, and of course, that's sort of my point, right? Spring training is to sort of hone those skills that you haven't been practicing mm-hmm. that are really important game skills. There's a lot of emphasis placed on them. Why don't you show me that? Nobody nobody goes to spring training and say, let's practice hitting home runs. Right. Like, you know, ball players do that. When they when they get a pitch and they hit the pitch, they hit a home run. Like, but the, what the things they actually work on, like bunting. I would love to see an all-star bunting competition, <laughs> which I know you're laughing. It sounds insane, but I would be so much more interested in seeing that than than what we do actually see. Yeah. Have you ever been to the all-star game in person? I have not. I had an opportunity to go, and, and I I can't remember which game it was. Maybe there was one in Seattle when I was living there. Um, and I and I chose not to go because I think I had a conflict of some other event that was happening. But it it also just doesn't hold the it just doesn't hold the allure to me that it once did. I mean, in general, I find going to baseball games in person fairly unpleasant compared to um, compared to either watching them at home or going to spring training. Okay. So, you know, I go to I've gone to a lot of games at Fenway Park lately, but I've been to many major league stadiums. I've been to more than half of them. 
And most of the stadiums, unless you're willing to get well into three digits of what you're paying per ticket, mm-hmm. you're not going to get a seat that's really worth a damn, in my opinion, yeah. because you're just so far. Now, I, I have seats in Fenway that are actually right above the opposing pitcher's bullpen. Oh, nice. And that's really cool. And there are two times during the game when that's really cool. It's number one, the opposing starter will come there before the game to warm up, and it's just really cool to watch. And then the relief pitchers will obviously warm up during the game. And I'll tell you, like, there's no – nothing I've ever seen as cool as watching Mariano Rivera warm up in the Fenway <laughs> bullpen and hearing the difference between his fastball and the majority of other players' fastballs yeah. – uh, when they hit the catcher's glove. But, you know, in terms of home plate, I i mean, I took my daughter to her first game several weeks ago, and she did not even have a sense of, literally, she did not have a sense of where the action was happening. Oh, wow. She saw the big grass field, and she saw outfielders and people walking around, but she kept saying to me, where's the pitcher and where's the hitter? And I'm pointing <laughs> to home plate when he's at the pitcher's mat, and she just didn't really understand it. Yeah. Now, she doesn't She doesn't have a great understanding of baseball yet in general. She's, she's quite young. But, you know, it just really struck home with me, like, how unbelievably poor those seats were. Yeah. So the All-Star game where it's, like, constant um, – constant breaks and and everything is really slow and drawn out it just doesn't appeal to me at all and i would much rather watch that on tv the the only exception i can imagine if someone you know gave me first row seats or something right. i'd do it but like we were saying earlier um spring training that is the place to be um if you can ever schedule a trip to florida or arizona during spring training the experience is is just amazing. It's just such a great place to see a game. Yeah, no, I I actually went down to spring training for about 12 hours last year um, in a really ill-advised plan. I, I flew down at midnight, kind of spent the night at the airport, and then drove out there at like 5 a.m. to Peoria, where the Mariners have their um, spring training facilities. Slept in the parking lot and just got there just to watch them take like fielding practice and batting practice and stuff like that. Um and next time, I'm definitely going to plan it better so I can see games and things like that. But it was pretty nice seeing the players work out and stuff. You sound like an incredibly dedicated baseball fan. <laughs> a little bit. I try to be. So what what wishes do you have to see? You know, you've, you've come along as a fan at an interesting time. You've seen some players have monster offensive years. You've seen some of the very best pitching performances that there have ever been in, in the game's history. Um, you know, you've already seen a lot in just these three plus years that you've been watching, but what, what, what can you think of that you would like to see down the road? You know, I think the Mariners world series championship, whenever that happens is just at the, at the top of my list. Um, I can't really think of anything else, but I mean, I've seen, you know, perfect games and world series wins from the, the Giants and all that. Um, and inside the park home run, that's on my list of things to be fortunate enough to see. Yeah, now that's um, – inside the park home run is great. Being being at a game that is won on a walk-off hit of some kind is, mm-hmm. is a lot of fun too, which is not, not that unusual. Yeah. I was actually at uh, one of Randy Johnson's 19 strikeout games. Oh, wow. And it was the one that he lost that uh, Mark McGuire, who's still playing for Oakland then, um, hit just an incredible home run that I swear almost touched the roof of the kingdom and went just incredibly deep into the, into the upper deck. Um, And that's, you know, that kind of an experience is really cool in person because obviously I I can't remember the, the numbers, but he had a lot of strikeouts early. In other words, it became apparent by the fifth inning that he had a shot at at tying, I think at that time the, the record was still 20, 20 strikeouts in a game. He had a real shot at tying that or breaking that because I think he already had maybe 10 or 12 through five innings. Wow. It, was, it was ridiculous. Wow. 
But so then you can imagine the, the last four innings were just incredibly exciting. Yeah. Because, you know, he registered another strikeout or two each inning, and he got very close. And you have one of those weird things in baseball where when it was the ninth inning, and when Oakland got a – I can't remember exactly what happened, but if a guy got a hit, there were cheers. Huh. Uh, so Oakland player, because they wanted Randy to have another shot at yeah. getting a strikeout. And wow. then, like, somebody hit a ball in play and recorded an out, and the fans booed. Oh, wow. Which is really, <laughs> which is really weird, right? But, yeah. but you know, they they wanted to see something special, I guess, mm-hmm. and uh, and thought, you know, they'd like him to have the opportunity. There you have it. What a great conversation. Ashley is a, is a sharp young fan. It's it's really interesting as a somewhat older fan to get the perspective of a younger person who is also very smart and uh, and and has a good understanding of the game. It's uh, it's a real interesting sort of conversation to have. I remember when I was Ashley's age having similar conversations with older fans then, and this is how it. This is how baseball works. It's been around for so long and undergoes so many changes over such a long period of time that everybody has a different perspective. Everybody has a different uh, base, if you will, in terms of when they became a fan and what they're accustomed to. And I think it's always interesting to, to sort of get those cards on the table to understand how everyone's coming from a different perspective and, and sees things in a different way. It's great to get some of Ashley's uh, thoughts so you heard that you can follow her writing uh, on Prospect Insider, which is at prospectinsider.com. Uh, it's a very easy website to navigate. You can see which things she's written on there quite easily. Of course, she also contributes to High Heat Stats. You can read her over there. And if you want to follow her on Twitter, that is at W Coast fangirl so that's all one word w coast fangirl it's obviously stands for west coast fangirl uh, and again w coast fangirl she's uh she's good follow on twitter and of course if you're not following me you can do that at high heat stats uh one or two other simple requests if you have any feedback on this show or or any questions about future shows please email it to us at feedback at highheatstats.com and lastly, if you could leave us ratings or reviews on iTunes, again, very, very helpful for us getting found by other people, uh, would be much appreciated. It's a great way to show your support for this podcast, and especially if you'd like to see it continue. Thanks, and be lucky. <laughs>